friend of the show, my friend Mark Riffert, has notified me of the passing of John Bates. Now, do you remember John Bates? I don't remember John Bates. John Bates is the man who designed Emma Peel's couture for the black and white oh, series. Oh, yes, yes, sir. I saw the, saw the obituary in The Guardian the other day, yes. That's right. And it sort of set me thinking because those designs were so iconic for want of a better word. And because it was being filmed in monochrome, his use of black and white was particularly stylish and its relationship to the op art, optical art of the 1960s. Mm. And it set me thinking about the tie-ins between series and designers. And obviously there are kind of commercial opportunities for that. And so next time, I think we ought to have a look at the people who designed for actors actors who possibly designed their own clothes for themselves yes for themselves yes which there seem to be quite a lot uh and mm-hmm. maybe the not so successful big names who didn't really manage to cut it as it were i think there's plenty of material there oh it sounds like you've got it all sewn up <laughs> Right, so that's what we'll do next time. There will be a little break because we're off down to the southwest, down to Somerset and Gloucestershire. All right, okay. Uh, next week. Okay. And of course, there will be another couple of episodes of The Saint to cover in our review show, which is on SoundCloud, as opposed to this wonderful showcase thing, which is going to be on. Buzzsprout. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Rose Tinted Black and White Television. This is a show where we look at the black and white TV that flitted across British TV screens between 1956 and 1974. With me, as always, is my co-host David Newell. Hello. As we pointed out before, hand gestures don't really work on radio no yeah i shouldn't wave so much but i do like waving um you can wave but it does have to have to have a sound effect (laughs) yeah normally on zoom you know you do that goodbye wave that you do at the end don't know is there an audio um i don't know if there's an audio equivalent um there's probably all sorts of emojis and stuff that you can have in the sidebar but listeners to the podcast won't actually be able to benefit from that. So one of the things that uh, made me think about the subject for this particular episode was the, in starring The Saint, which we'll get to in the review show, Ronald Rad makes his appearance. Now, we've talked about him before. He's got three Avengers points, but he crops up in almost everything until his untimely death in the early 70s. Paul Whitson-Jones, again, quite a few Avengers points, you know, a decent number. He crops up in almost everything during the late 50s, 60s and early 70s. So these people are stalwarts. Now, you mentioned another person that we could talk about. Oh, well, yeah, Michael Balfour, who is, is again, one of those sweaty British um kind of like character actors who always seems to be a a presence always seems to 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 be there uh, and i suppose one of the things you you do wonder um is is when it comes to casting casting agents and casting 
um, directors, um, and even like from the actors themselves, whether they feel that they, they sometimes may have a little bit of responsibility to explain to the series or to the casting director and say, well, I've actually been in this before. And it's all right, well, you'll know how it works, but I imagine it would be more complicated if you are playing a character that may be related to another character that you've played who died. It would be that very, very confusing um, aspect where you think, wait, wait a minute, weren't they in that the other week? Um, I sometimes get the same sort of effect if I'm watching um, a programme on a commercial um, television station and the actor either appears in an advert um, during its showing or does a voiceover. And for a second, I think the TV show might have started again earlier and you just go, I don't understand, why is that character saying so much about washing powder or like freeing up equity in people's houses? Is this anything to do with, oh no, wait a minute, no, it's still an advert, it's okay. Yes, a very similar thing happened to my um, old boss in Hong Kong. And uh, when he started off, he was a freelance. And so he used to present stuff on RTHK's uh, television programme. And his speciality was finance. So uh, it was one occasion when he was interviewing, I think it was the finance secretary of Hong Kong. And they were talking about fairly weighty matters. One of the other things he did to pay the rent was he used to star in the occasional adverts. be seen taking a suitcase off a conveyor belt and it falling apart, whereas the other fella had a Samsonite suitcase with wheels uh, and would tow it away, leaving Big Al looking a bit dishevelled because the, the strap-on wheels of his suitcase had come off. And so in the ad break of this current affairs show, apparently they cut to a picture of Mr Hargraves with a Mexican moustache dressed in a sombrero, sliding down a gigantic banana. I think it was to do with Chiquita or, or something like that. This didn't go unnoticed by the RTHK hierarchy and he was politely told to stop doing the adverts. Cutting <laughs> uh, off a revenue stream. But then they gave him a proper contract, so it, that was fine. I think that was, they said, we've got to stop him doing that. <laughs> Let's give him a contract. It is, it is strange. Uh, you you have played that trick on, on ourselves as well with the um, release of the film, the original Jurassic Park um, film. All of a sudden, there was a spate of um, documentaries around paleontologists looking at what was the current trends within kind of like excavating dinosaurs, dinosaur skeletons. And apparently one of the most popular places was Mongolia, apparently a rich, rich harvest of dinosaur bones there. Um, and in one of the BBC documentaries, sure enough, there's like some, some off-road vehicle with some bearded types from some university and they're kind of like excavating away and they're using their little brushes and everything like that. And they're listening to the BBC World Service with none other than Guy Morgan. Really, you just think, wait, is that, is that Guy on that? Is that Guy in the background there? How'd that crop up? Yes, I have to plead guilty to that. Um, I was doing the stock market news, I think. And if I remember rightly, because I did catch the show later on, on a repeat, I think the guy just turns off the radio and says, same shit everywhere. <laughs> <gasps> oh, how, how cutting. Yes. Well, why do you need to know about the stock market when you're in the middle of the Gobi Desert? Yeah. Mmm, pork bellies. <laughs> but we digress. Obviously, 
you did get a lot of actors who, and you still get a lot of actors who appear in commercials, and you do what pays the rent. But one of the things that seems to pay the rent for quite a lot of people in the 50s, 60s and 70s is making constant guest appearances in TV shows, particularly ITC shows, and they are appearing frequently in the same season as different characters. It's it's great. I mean, we 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 looked at um, how the same actress um, walked with Simon all the way across parts of Spain, and only weeks earlier had been just trying to get five hundred dollars back because her bl- blind boyfriend. Um, same actress, same hairstyle, same dress. Uh, so it is that idea of having almost like a, I suppose, like a repertory company. Which is quite a nice idea, and once you kind of get into that. But also, there is that, if so-and-so isn't available, then we've got someone looks pretty much identical. If you put them all in a police lineup, Yeah, well, I don't know. Oh, which one was it? Suppose if you, if you had that problem of... Of being mugged, it's a police lineup of Jeff Daniels, uh, and Bill Pullman, and Bill Paxson. So I don't know. I think it was all three officers. I don't care if two of them have got an alibi. Yeah, all of them. And there is an awful lot of that in the sixties. A lot of blonde actresses tended to have the same hairstyle and appear to be interchangeable. A lot of uh, of actors of fairly ample proportions. I mean, Ronald Rudd is one, Patrick Newell, your mm. uncle Patrick, Paul Whitson-Jones. Yeah. Oh, what's his name? Is it Guy Polman? Yeah. Who's, he's one of those heavyweights. And it's he's, he's kind of like an ancestor of John Rhys-Davis, where they look pretty hefty and they can kind of play that might be Arabic or oh, wait a minute no they're 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 oh no they're Turkish or they're, oh no are they something else and they they have a flexibility to them yes without necessarily the benefit of makeup we've discussed that mm. before but these are people who have the heft what was the name of that character in Berlin desk who was the guy who sat in the cafe and ran everything. Oh, Rigo Brenzer. Rigo Brenzer. I think any one of them could play him. Yeah, just, just walk into that part, yes. Um, Oscar Homolka, Oscar. All, of, all of those kinds, yeah. Funny story on John Rhys-Davis, uh, obviously from Lord of the Rings and from the Indiana Jones trilogy, uh, when... Uh, um, Luciano Pavarotti unfortunately passed away. There was a news link on the big TV screen that they used to have at Leeds City Station. Um, and I overheard someone say, oh no, that guy out of Raiders of the Lost Ark has died. <laughs> and just go, no, that's that's Luciano Pavarotti. No, that different, different person. Same look, different person. So I suppose what we're talking about, and I've heard other actors say this, that actually when you go up for a part, it's not necessarily how good an actor you are or how you deliver the lines, but it's directors and producers are going for a look. So they're looking for someone who's fairly large. You know, perhaps going all the way back to the 1940s with Sidney Greenstreet, the groundbreaking original fat man as he's dubbed in the Maltese Falcon. But that idea, yeah, of kind of like a sinister heavy, literally a heavy, a heavy heavy, who would, like you said, fill the screen and give big presents. And you do need those sort of people because it's shorthand for what their character is like, isn't it? They can either be jolly or they can be sinister. Yeah, Sebastian Cabot or Cabot, 
And there's another one, the guy who voiced Bagheera in The Jungle Book. He was one of those big, jolly bearded types. There is kind of like a roster. William Conrad. And don't forget, he used to have his own cop show. So, yeah, William Conrad, again, um, played like Cannon, Nero Wolf, um, Jake and the Fat Man. Um, guess which one he played? And that was, yeah, his his signature role. Although that fitted in quite well, because in the books, um, Nero Wolf hardly ever leaves his apartment. He just gets Archie and, and Saul Panzer to do a lot of running around for him and solving crimes. So that's one particular type, um, people who are larger than life, for example. Sadly, if you try to go against the grain, as Patrick Newell did, he lost a whole amount of weight and was very pleased about it and then mm. one quite famous theatre director said well you've lost 90% of your casting potential oh. and I think the story goes that Patrick Newell decided well he had to put the weight back on and unfortunately I think he had a heart attack and that was the end of that so it's sizeism, lookism or whatever you want to call yes. it is both a blessing and a curse because obviously if you have a particular look if you're particularly tall like christopher lee because we know that certainly bugged him the fact that he... a disability by 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 christopher lee yes um or if you're shorter than average then you're not necessarily going to be given the romantic lead and obviously it also boiled down to things like uh, the color of your skin as well and in those times did you see rainbow city when they repeated the first episode on BBC Four. Oh, right. Now, is this the one... Um, I saw a little clip of it where um, there was someone t talking to a vicar. Yes, that's the, that one. the one. that's the one? That's the one. Black Ma and white. Yeah. yeah, made in 1967. I can't remember it in detail, if I remember it at all. I do know that there was some controversy on some programme at the time where you had a black husband and a white wife and there were some fairly vitriolic letters to points of view about that and this would have been round about that time when race relations was an issue and it was always presented as a problem but I'll be interested to see if they're repeating the rest of Rainbow City because it would be probably quite enlightening not only about the number of actors of colour that were available and get to yeah. appear. Yeah, you've got Calvin Lockhart, who's in it as well. Calvin Lockhart, who's um, who is in The Beast Must Die, um, amongst others, and Predator 2. Yeah, so it, I think by the looks of it, the clips I've seen, uh, and, and like I said, hopefully it's going to be repeated, that idea is, yeah, it was quite groundbreaking. Yes, and should have opened up a lot more opportunities for people and gave the lie to the argument that there just weren't enough black actors around, that plainly were. Um, there were plainly enough East Asian actors around. Mm. So if you're talking about recurring characters, stalwarts, you get people who make recurrent appearances and then go on to be stars in their own right. Somebody like Burt Kwok, for example, was uh, a supporting Kwok, actor. Yeah. yeah, Earl Cameron as well. Yeah, so people were getting those parts, but they weren't necessarily getting as many opportunities as they could have done. We're talking about people who actually have credits and keep appearing in all sorts of things, perhaps never getting their own show, but, oh. but there again, having quite long careers. 
presumably they are being cast for a look. Now, as you said, Michael Balfour, I, I thought, do I know the name Michael Balfour? And then I looked him up on IMDb. Oh, him! Him, yeah, the sweaty guy, yeah. Apparently he could also do a convincing American accent, though yes, he was born always, in Kent. Yeah, so sometimes, you, you know, your casting requirements would, you know, can you do this? Uh, you know, can you do this accent? Can you sweat on demand? And he can drive a car. Brilliant. Let's get in the part. Yes, there's all sorts of things like that. You probably don't have to ride a horse, particularly if you were in, say, Robin Hood or uh, William Tell, because there wouldn't be a lot of location work with horses. No. You, you might have to climb the odd studio tree to yeah, jump be, out Yeah, be handy it. with a sword. Yeah, that'd be useful. And maybe a bit of stave work over on a fallen tree trunk over a stream or something like that. The requirements are really just to turn up on time, be available, and probably live within about 20 minutes of Elstree or Pinewood. But we've, and I think we might have alluded to this before, but can that sometimes work against that person um, or, or work against the TV show as a whole sometimes? Because if you cast those same actors because they're able to do fill that shtick as, as such, if, as we've seen in a couple of um, episodes of The Saint, where it's sort of like an Agatha Christie murder mystery, as was um, starring the saint. That idea of if it's the same actors, you just go, well, it's just him. It's him, I know it's him. A friend of mine, when they went to see The Fugitive, the big cinema version of it with Harrison Ford, um, and as soon as like Jerome Crabbe turned up, it's just like, well, he's the villain. He's the villain because he's been the villain in every other film that he's in, so it, it must be the villain in this. And there's, there's hardly any other suspects. <laughs> so yes, sometimes when you see those old familiar faces, it, it sort of like undermines it um, a little bit. It is a little more preferable where you do get real left field serial killers or murderers. My two favourites being um, the Black Cat from the early 1940s, nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe. And the, the serial killer in that is Dame Gladys Cooper. Didn't see that one coming. And I think there's one there's one um, called Corridor of Mirrors, which is set in Italy in the 1950s. And the murderer in that is, again, never saw this coming. It was Janet from Dr. Finley's casebook. Who'd have guessed? And then she's presumably got access to drugs in Dr. Finley's casebook. So why should she get employed? Yeah. Why has she been rehabilitated that way? Yeah, so sometimes it is, you know, if you do have a radical piece of casting where you just think, I would have never have put them down as a murderer because it's Dame Gladys Cooper. I mean, that is another thing about stalwarts. Obviously, if you're a dame, you've got a certain profile. But there's another set of stalwarts who are slightly eccentric old ladies who are a bit in the Miss Marple vein. Joan Higson, that, that type. Yeah, before she became Miss Marple, she would have appeared in... In feature films, but also they would be... What we need is some kind of eccentric landlady or village busybody. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, so I suppose what we're talking about is dramatic cliches, characters who are introduced basically to fill out the background, but also to give a certain sense of ambience to the whole affair. And particularly if you've got a smaller village... And it, it will be populated by, say, the heavyweight village blacksmith, mm -hmm. perhaps a Scottish gamekeeper. Oh, um, it's like groundskeeper Willie from The Simpsons. <laughs> there will be the village postmistress, 
who would be a frustrated spinster type. There would be the village busybody who would be cycling around with one of those bicycles with a very large basket on the front. Mm, yeah. Possibly containing knitting or arsenic. And there are probably at least two actresses who would be cast as people who are no better than they ought to be. Oh, no, not people rising above their station. Or who have certain appetites with anything <gasps> in trousers. Oh, no. Oh, they're a little fast. I think that's what it is. Um, and you'll get that in things like Lord Peter Whimsey and Paul Temple. Yes, you need people. You, you go down your roller decks of coloured index cards for that and say, oh, well, no, they're in a summer season or they're in panto. You're in a season of Noel Coward plays at Andover <laughs> and um, they're not available. Even when you're trying to cast major roles... There's usually about a half a dozen names in the frame. Yeah. Once again, Nari Dawn Porter kept getting suggested for the Avengers. Oh. Unfortunately, she was successful in the Foresight saga. There you go. Um, so, yeah, it's swings and roundabouts. I guess one of the other aspects as well is, is if you were playing a cop in those series where, you, you know, the, the lead actor is... Um, kind of like a private agent, such as the Saint, such as um, the Baron, Randall and Hopkirk diseased, where they've not got a sort of like regular buddy in the police force. Um, usually all you'd be asked to do is say, right, you're the cop investigating the case and everything you say is wrong-headed. Yes. That's all they've, they've got to do. They've got to be wrong-headed and think that the hero is the guilty person, but never elude them between the chap and the and the commercial breaks and then at the end kind of gets a big grudging and apology from the cop investigating the case as happened in the fellow traveler where the yeah the local detective in stevenage told templar not to play amateur detective and templar says i wouldn't dream of playing amateur detective i'd leave that to you how scathing how cutting those particular roles it is just like one big live version of Cluedo, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. You know, you're just moving between the library and the drawing room and the kitchen and the dining room. You'd have your standard hat. You might have um, a, a sergeant who you order around to do a lot of running around and stuff like that. And what's quite charming is to get away by going into a hotel reception and saying, I'm from Scotland Yard, let me see your bookings and let me see your register. And um, you just go, yeah, oh, yeah, better have, because they've just said they're from Scotland Yard. You know, perhaps pre-warrant card days. When the age of deference still held sway. Yes, yeah. You know, you, you didn't get anyone turning up in, like, a blue jacket, you know, with police across the back, or a big high-vis jacket. If you'd imagine, you'd look like someone from the future if you'd have turned up in a high-vis jacket. It's, uh, I'm from the police. What year is this? Who's the president? <laughs> Everyone's just accepted on their word. Indeed. I think we've, for the moment, covered the stalwarts and who they might be and what might be uh, required to be one. But the British TV industry couldn't have been what it was without them. And we salute them. Oh, sorry, I'm doing a hand gesture saluting. I know that, that won't get picked up, will it, by the sound? Uh, again, we need a kind, of, a kind of sound effect for saluting. But I don't know what it'd be. That concludes the showcase 
shop window version on Buzzsprout of episode nine of Rose Tinted Black and White Television. I'm Guy Morgan. My co-host has been David Newell. Good evening. And he's just saluted. This has been a Soundstage North production. For our review of Starring the Saint, uh, please go to our SoundCloud channel where you should be able to find that, plus all the past review shows and the archive of all the other shows before Buzzsprout kicks them off. As I said before, there'll be a brief hiatus, if that doesn't sound too painful, and we'll be back again in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.